Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, page 1004 in the Black Pew Bible. And again, if you're visiting Redeemer, thank you so much for coming tonight. And here at Redeemer, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and God speaks to us through it. So we open it together, and we've been working our way through uh, this letter. Tonight, the writer turns back to the topic of priests. He'll mention one with a funny name, Melchizedek, and he'll talk about Christ as a priest in the Melchizedekian order of priesthood. I wanted to work Melchizedekian into the sermon, and I just did it. A discussion of Christ as priest will interest you if you understand That God says you can only approach him and enjoy access to him and his full acceptance of you if you are holy, if you are perfect. If you have begun to see God at all in the perfection of his holiness and have begun in any way to sense the terror of his holy law and judgment against you if you know yourself to be a sinner then you know exactly why you need a priest like the israelites who came to mount sinai sinai not mount pisgah that's where moses looked out at the promised land though he was barred from going into it that's pisgah but at sinai they had come to the mountain god had spoken from the mountain the ten commandments and what did the people do They shook, they trembled with fear, and they stepped back and they said, Moses, you go up on the mountain. You've been up there before talking with God. He seems to accept you. Why don't you you stand in for us? They didn't want to be close to the holy God when they knew they weren't right before him. And they didn't yet know about the full atonement he... uh, was providing for them. So they didn't feel safe. And they weren't apart from a mediator, apart from a go-between. And so thereafter, shortly thereafter, God gave to the Israelites priests. The book of Leviticus is all about how priests help unholy people come to the Holy One. And any Jew after that, from his infancy knew that sinners don't just waltz casually into the presence of a holy God and announce, I'm here, pay attention to me, right? We need a priest to have access to God and the assurance of our acceptance. What priest do you need? That's the subject of verses 1 through 10 we'll be reading tonight. You need the best one, and we're going to hear about him From Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's word here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part. Of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, 
king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor, when Melchizedek met him. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. And our Lord and our God, grant that your word would revive our souls, that you would enlighten our hearts, that you would give joy to our hearts, that you would exalt Jesus, lift him high. Among us, we pray, do that which only you can do. By your spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You see here that the Old Testament actually had two lines of priesthood that we often think it just had one. Uh, Both of these priesthoods are from God. Both serve their purpose. One of them was greater than the other. The order of Melchizedek is greater than the order of the Levites. And here's his argument. Melchizedek is a greater priest than Aaron. And Melchizedek is like Jesus, and so Jesus is also a greater priest than Aaron. And why is he saying that? Well, his original audience, Jewish Christians who were tempted to turn back away from Jesus and return to the Judaism of their day because of social pressure, family pressure, wondering if it really mattered that much. Uh, they were, some of them, really tempted to go back to that. And he's saying, don't go back to the animal sacrifices. Don't go back to the Old Testament priesthood. It wasn't really effective. Those sacrifices had to be constantly repeated. And they were really meant to be fulfilled in the one priest and his one offering, Jesus. So don't, don't leave Jesus to go back to the sons of Levi and their very human priesthood. And And in order to win them to that position, and maybe to win you, you need to be taught. They needed simply to hear the truth and be informed. That's what the first ten verses is about. He'll get to some of the practical implications of it in the rest of the chapter. But here it was simply important that they know something that was true. And I just want to pause there and say sometimes, sometimes when you study the Bible, the most important thing you can get out of it is that there's something for you to do. There's maybe a new way to live. But sometimes the most important thing is that you simply know something you didn't know before 
or you know it better than you did and have greater confidence in it. That's really what's here. You need to know that you have a big Savior who is a big priest who can really handle your sins, who can really give you welcome before the face of the Father. You need Jesus, your priest. And so, let me walk through the passage with you and, sh- with you and show you how he builds that argument. And let's do it in three parts. First, in verses 1 to 3, he basically tells you, listen, Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Then, in verses 4 through 7, he tells you, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and therefore so is Jesus. And then in verses 8 through 10, Melchizedek is greater than Levi, and therefore so is Jesus. So put your trust in him. So those three things. In the first place, Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Verses 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, verse 1, and notice the very end of verse 3, resembling the Son of God. Who is this Melchizedek? What's he talking about? This guy only appears in your Old Testament in two places, in four verses total. Three of them in Genesis chapter 14, and then one of them about a thousand years later in Psalm 110 verse 4. That's it. The only other place you hear about Melchizedek is here in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, and so forth. Now, what the writer, of course, is saying at the very front end is, you need to know your Old Testament. You need to know the stories. You need to know the people. You need to know the Psalms. Because they point you to Jesus. Because the Old Testament is about Jesus. He's going to explain that. Sometimes what seems really minor or really obscure is actually very important to understanding Jesus. You may not have noticed it before Jesus came, but once he did come, and, and once the Bible pointed it out to you, you see, oh, this is actually pretty important stuff. That's an important principle of interpretation. And the book, the whole book, is Christian literature. And if Jewish Christians in Jesus' day needed to learn again the meaning of this Old Testament character, how much more do you and I need to learn? So let's learn. And he reminds them of the time when Abraham was in Canaan and encountered King Ketelaomar. Now this is Genesis chapter 14. What had happened was Abraham presumably was minding his own business. But the kings of the east, King Ketelaomar, along with some others, had gathered together to sweep down on the kings of the west, some surrounding kings nearby to Abraham, to, uh, to do battle, to, to get revenue, to, you know, to suppress rebellion. And so they swept through in great victory, taking plunder and people, and Abraham's nephew Lot got swept up in that mass of people who were taken basically into slavery. Now when Abraham heard of it, what did he do? He gathered his fighting men, the fighting men of his household, 318 men, and he chased King Ketelaomar down, surprised him by night, and recovered the loot and the captives. It was an awesome victory. And, And upon returning from that victory, Abraham was met by two kings who had come out to congratulate him 
or at least one did. One was the king of Sodom. The other was the king of Salem. One was the king of wickedness, and the other was the king of righteousness. The king of Sodom wanted to manipulate and control Abraham. He basically wanted Abraham under his thumb, and Abraham refused to have anything to do with him and his evil. The other king, the king of Salem, was this mysterious Melchizedek who came out to bless Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, it reads this way. After his return from the defeat of Ketaleomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham, or Abram, gave him a tenth of everything. That's the story. That's it. Now the writer reiterates some of that, and he draws out ways for us in which Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Particularly with regard to his priesthood. And so let's just walk through four or five things he says here. First of all, notice that Melchizedek is a king and priest of God Most High. He's a king and priest. He's king of Salem, verse 1. Four times in two verses, it tells you the man is a king. You can't miss that. And he's a king-priest. He's royal priesthood. Now that's something totally foreign to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. There was never that combination in Israel. Israel's priests were never king, and kings were never priests. They were not to perform both functions in Israel. When people tried it, they got in massive trouble with God. God basically divided their authority so that a bad one, certainly at least in part, so a bad one wouldn't mess too many things up at once. Kind of like why we have three branches of government here in the U.S., But we don't have those concerns with Jesus, of course. He's king and priest, and Melchizedek resembles him in that. That's the first way, uh, that's the first resemblance. The second is, Melchizedek is king of righteousness, and so also is Jesus. And so the writer tells you that uh, when he goes on to, at the middle of verse 2, say, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And uh, that basically translates Melchizedek. Melch or is king, and Zadok, or Zedek, is righteousness. So king of righteousness, and that's who Jesus is too. And I simply want to pause there and say, praise God there is such a thing as a king of righteousness. And one of the things our politics exposes, I think, certainly being exposed pretty easily, is our longing for a good leader. One we trust and can trust implicitly. One who will love only what is good. Say only what is good and true. And do only what is good and true. You have never known a leader like that. Not in church, not in state, not in your house. And you aren't that person either. But there is one who exists. Jesus, the King of Righteousness. And that's why I always say to my friends in America on the political left and the political right, 
this is what holds us together, Redeemer, is that we have a better king and a better kingdom uh, than anything this world offers us. And King Jesus is our rallying point, not where you come down on the very uh, issues of today. Jesus is the source of our unity, and he is good, and he is righteous. Thirdly, he's also the king of peace. Melchizedek is king of Salem. Notice that language. And, And that means he's the king of peace. Why? Well, Salem is Jerusalem, and the word Salem is from the same root as Shalom, which is the word for peace. And the author is pointing that out. He's both king of righteousness and king of peace. And actually, there's a wonderful... A relationship between those two things that's actually really helpful for our understanding of, of what we have in the gospel. It's really important that you have both those things and the one really brings about the other. You can't have peace in a relationship if you don't have a right relationship or a righteous re- relationship. If you break the righteousness, if you offend the relationship, you disturb the peace. And there needs to be some kind of reconciliation. If you are not righteous as a person, the Bible says you are not at peace with God and he is not at peace with you. But if you are righteous, then you are at peace with God and he is at peace with you. He is for you. Now how, how can any of us who transgress the commandments who step across the line, who fail to do all that we should do, any of us who have offended our Creator, how can any of us have this kind of righteousness and right standing and thus peace between us and God? Well, this is what the Gospel's about. It is the blessing of the Gospel that Jesus is our righteousness. And therefore, He puts us at peace with God and God at peace with us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, he says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying? Therefore, since we have been justified, it's a done deal. It's a completed action. It's not we're hoping someday to be justified. What's justified? Declared righteous. We have been, he says, declared right with God through faith in Christ. Therefore, what? We have peace with God. He's not against us. Jesus covers us in his robe of righteousness. It's a beautiful picture of the blessing of the gospel. It just points us back to this idea that Christ is both the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And we have these things with God in him. Fourthly, Melchizedek, well, his priesthood wasn't hereditary and neither is Jesus priesthood notice verse 3 he that is Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy now I don't believe as most don't that his point about not having parents uh, well let me put it positively his point about not having parents is not that Melchizedek is some kind of created angel without parents. Angels don't have parents. Though some have taught that. 
No angel was ever a priest. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Every high priest is taken from among men. Therefore, he couldn't be an angel. Now, others have said that Melchizedek is perhaps some kind of pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son, of Christ, before he ever came in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And yet the passage here says he resembles the Son of God. He's like the Son of God. And I don't think it would make sense for, for him to say that if he's really saying the Son of God resembles the Son of God. That's not who this Melchizedek is here. The point is that in the Bible, we aren't told who Melchizedek's father or mother or any genealogy at all is. And that's extremely unusual in the book of Genesis and other Old Testament books too. In Genesis Whenever you read about some significant character, there's always a backstory of of the genealogy, the book of the record of the families of the generations. Who came from who? Where did this guy get? How did he get here? Well, who's his dad? Who's his mom? Who who are his descendants, right? Uh, There are usually lengthy genealogies. There is no genealogy. This guy just shows up out out of nowhere. Now, that isn't an oversight on the part of the Holy Spirit who inspired these words. It was on purpose so that there would be, in the day of Jesus when this was written, and for us now, a clear contrast between Melchizedek and all the others so that we could learn more about Jesus. If you remember, the priests of the Old Testament, all of them from Israel, they all came from one tribe. They came from the tribe of the Levites. They all descended from Moses' brother Aaron through his son Levi. And it was a necessary qualification for you to serve as a priest that you had to be from that family line. You couldn't be a priest, even if you wanted to or would be great at it, if you didn't have that proper genealogy. And now here's this priest, and, and we've got no information. A Jew would have said, he can't serve in Israel, and yet he was a true priest of God Most High. And Jesus, as we'll see later, he doesn't descend from Aaron and the Levites either, but he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, fifthly, he's priest forever. Notice that language. Having neither beginning of days, this is, I think, the end of verse 3, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And the point here again is I think it's not that Melchizedek himself didn't have parents or didn't have a beginning or never died. But on the pages of the Bible, you're never told when he was born. You're never told that he died. He suddenly appears seemingly out of nowhere, suddenly disappears just as quickly, and nothing more is said of him until a thousand years later. In the Psalms, when it talks about the Messiah who's going to be a priest forever like him. The idea is we really don't know the beginning of his priesthood. Nor on the pages of the Bible is there any end of his priesthood. There was the end of the priesthood of the Levites every time they died. They were just dying men. 
They were ordained as priests at the age of 25. They helped the other priests until they were 30. Then, then at 30, they took up the work and they, they had to retire at the age of 50. That's a pretty good retirement program. One generation gave way to another generation of priests as each one retired, as each one died out, as each priest had sons in the tribe. But Melchizedek, no posterity, no successor until Jesus. And so it is in the Bible, it appears as though Melchizedek lives. His priesthood continues until Jesus comes. And he lives and his priesthood continues forever. For which Melchizedek was but a, a pale, but genuine comparison. And so what you have here in the first part of the sermon, verses 1 to 3, Jesus is a royal priest who will never do you wrong, who perfectly presents you to God, and who does so not on the basis of some hereditary right to being a priest, but on the basis of what the later in the chapter will say, an indestructible life and the perfection of his work. And it goes on forever so that you and I can trust him in any generation and in every generation and in all our situations. He's never out of the box. He's never missing from work. So that's the first part of his argument. Melchizedek is kind of like Christ. Second part of his argument, argument, more briefly, and the third will be even shorter, verses 4 to 7, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, therefore so is Jesus. And you see that in two ways here in verses 4 through 7 through tithes and through blessings. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham here, the patriarch, the father, it's emphatic, the father of the family, the nation, the fountainhead of all Israel. He tithed to Melchizedek. Now, tithing became a normal part of Israel life. Later, it's commanded in the law. Portions of somebody's wealth was to be given to God. How did you give it to God? By giving in support of the ministry of God. Here, it went to the Levites to be distributed. Verse 5, those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, Though these are also descended from Abraham. Verse 6, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham. Now look, after that battle and that incredible victory, tithing for Abraham, I've got to think, was, was a very normal, natural thing for him to do. Very unsurprising in some ways. He simply wanted to offer to God praise and thanksgiving and giving of the bounty was a way in which to express that. It's a kind of thank offering. It's in fact a normal and natural way for people to give thanks to the one who they know has given to them And we might just apply that very briefly in a very painful way to say it this way. If Christianity hasn't hit your pocketbook, then it hasn't hit your heart. If you want to know if your heart is thankful to Jesus, look at where your money goes. Jesus said, for where uh, where your money is, there will your heart be also. 
You can tell. It's an indicator. Well, Abraham's heart was a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. And so he gave to the priest. That's the first thing that he gave to Melchizedek. That's the first way you see Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And the second is through the blessing. And there's a lesson in that in verses 6 and 7 and following. But this man who does not have his descent from Levi received Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now this is amazing. Abraham was the recipient of the promises of God. And what were those promises? God blessed him and said, Abraham, through you I am going to bless every family of the earth. The whole world is going to be blessed through you because I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And you would have thought when Abraham meets a Gentile Canaanite king who he's not offended by, who's not the king of wickedness necessarily, that he would have thought, I'll bless Melchizedek. But it's actually the reverse. It's the opposite. Melchizedek had a blessing from God to give to Abraham. A blessing Abraham needed from Melchizedek. And so verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Therefore, because Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, don't turn away from him, he's saying. And don't think that you are turning your back on Father Abraham by embracing Jesus, is what he's saying to them. And finally, in the third place, he builds on his argument to this conclusion, verses 8 through 10, when he again turns to the issue of tithes and now the Levites. And look at verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The point of his argument, maybe you have questions about that argument, but the point of the argument is because Abraham paid tithes and Levi is his descendant, though yet unborn, it can be argued in a way that Levi himself paid tithes. And you scratch your head and you say, There were no Levites around when Melchizedek was given money by Abraham. Abraham didn't have any offspring at this point. No children of his own. You have no Isaac. You have no Jacob. You have no 12 tribes of Israel, so you have no Levites. What's he saying? How can he make this argument? The argument is based on a covenant principle. The principle that we can be represented by another because of our binding relationship to the one who represents us. So that even though Levi wasn't born yet, and he was still in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham could represent him. This is the kind of principle at work in the very famous story of David and Goliath. You know the story, right? The two armies meet Israel and the Philistines, and finally, after days of being mocked by Goliath, Little tiny David goes out and says, come on, let's have at it. Mano a mano, right? One on one. To the victor goes the spoils. I win and my people win. You lose and your people lose. It's the covenant principle. One will stand for all. All will share in either the blessing or the suffering of being united to their representative. Well, this is the principle that's at work in our salvation. 
Paul puts it this way, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ are all made alive. As we are covenantally under the representation of Adam, we die. As we are covenantally under the representation of Christ, we're made alive. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. The Bible is saying, listen, either you suffer condemnation in Adam because you were in union with Adam and in him and his fall we fell, or you are blessed with righteousness in Christ because you are not united to Christ through faith and his perfect obedience is accounted for you and therefore you have life. That's the principle being articulated here, that covenant representation. The descendants of Abraham, the Levites, the priests, they're in union with Abraham. So his tithes to Melchizedek were their tithes, which means the writer is saying the Old Testament priests, all of them, were inferior to Melchizedek. And therefore, the order of his priesthood is greater than the order of the Levitical priesthood. And therefore, Christ's priesthood is better. So don't walk away from him. Don't go back to something worse. No one else can bring you safely to God. Just trust in Jesus to be your priest and God welcomes you. And as he said way back in chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest, the Son of God, Jesus. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in our time of need. His throne is always open to those who come through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. Thank you for this assurance that we can have, this confidence, even boldness to come boldly before you. And I pray that you would just pound that truth into our hearts, that we would run to you in trouble or temptation, failure, struggle, fear, and doubt. And know that you love to help those who are in need. Come to our aid, we pray strongly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.